Man, it's good to gather together with you. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's just good to be able to open up God's word, word with you this morning. So if you actually need a copy of the Bible, would you just raise your hand, and we'll have some folks bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning uh, in the text that we're going to be looking at. And if you don't actually have a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift, so you can ha- take that home with you and be able to read it throughout the week. Last week, uh, I had some of my closest friends in town. A bunch of guys that I was in a Bible study with while I was in college. And uh, every year, all of us get together for a weekend just to spend some time with one another. Uh, And we've been doing that since, I guess, 2003 or something like that. And so we we gather together every year and we kind of rotate around who hosts. And this year, uh, it was my turn to host. And so they all came up here. And so one of the things we did for part of our weekend was just go down and hang out in D.C. Spent the night down there, went to a Nats game. And walked around and looked at everything, ate some good food, of course, and just had a good time. You know, one of the things I love the most about living here in Fairfax is that we are so close to D.C. It's easy to get down there. And I love walking around the district, walking all around and just seeing all the things that are there. So many crazy and big, huge buildings. The National Archives building is this monstrous building that is beautiful to look at. There's monuments, there's carvings in the building, statues all over the place. It's just a fun place to be. And as you go and you see all these things, I think two things can happen. One, you kind of feel small. These huge buildings, these huge monuments. I mean, Thomas Jefferson's like 15 feet tall, right? And so, I mean, you feel little. But at the very same time, I think it's cool because I think you can feel a part of something bigger than yourself. There's so much history there and so much uh, things going on that point you to what's happened historically as a part of our country. Well, as we jump into our text today in the book of Exodus, we will see that there is a magnificent structure that's the focal point of what we're going to talk about today. But it isn't a monstrous building. It's a tent. And it's the tabernacle of God And the significance of this in the life of God's people was huge as they journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land. But it's also significant for you and for me if we're in Christ this morning as we journey towards the new heavens, the new earth, and the new city. To see the story of the tabernacle is significant for you because the hope that it communicates remains your hope today and forever. And the reality of what this means for you and for me is that we receive freedom and rest now and forever. So with that, let's pray and jump into God's word this morning. Father, we're grateful to be able to gather together and just praise you through song. We're grateful to be able to sit next to our brothers and sisters to be here, not just as an individual, but as part of a family. And whether this is someone's first first time or they've been here for a long time, I pray, Lord, that we would feel uh, the proximity of people around us. And that would be an encouragement to us today as we sit under the preaching of your word. Lord, I place myself there even as I preach your word, that your word would be what is spoken today. And Lord, that you would be exalted. And that as the word is preached this morning, as we open it up, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today. That we would recognize more of who you are and that would draw us into a deeper place of worship. That we would see the, the silly things that we do in our life. The things that we focus on that are not pleasing to you. But instead today that our gaze would be shifted back to you. And Lord that in that as we look at the tabernacle this morning that we would find freedom. We would find rest for our weary souls. So Lord we pray for your spirit to do a work today. A work that only you can do. And we pray that you'd be glorified in that. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. That's the last chapter in the book of Exodus. And so today we wrap up our uh, wrap up in the book of Exodus as we've been going through the first uh, five books of the Bible. And so next week we will jump into Leviticus. But today we're going to end in chapter 40. So I want to read starting in verse 1 through verse 16. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it in all its furniture so that it may become holy You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with the water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Now we jump in right here with quick instructions from God to Moses. God says to Moses, put up the tabernacle. It's time to put it up, to put it on display. Now this might be a bit random for us as we've walked through the book of Exodus because so far we're getting to the end and we haven't talked about the tabernacle really at all. But that's not to say that the book of Exodus doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the tabernacle. And that's why we want to end on it today. In fact, this goes all the way back to chapter 25 in the book of Exodus. As Moses stands on the mountain with God, that's when God instructs Moses to build this tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. See, God desires for his people to make a place, a very specific place, so that he can dwell with them and so they might experience his presence. And so then what we see is from Exodus chapter 25 to chapter 30, God gives all these specifications to Moses. I mean, down to how the dimensions of how things should be, what they should look like, all the details of the tabernacle and its furniture, and even the priests and what they should wear as they minister in the tabernacle. These super specific details of this sanctuary, though, are meant for something. They are meant to teach Israel in a very visual sense. As they visually see, as they see this tabernacle, to teach them what it means that God is holy. To teach them what it means for him to dwell among them. 
But there's a hiatus in all this. There's a break in all of this. Because in Exodus chapter 32, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the people get tired of Moses being up in the mountain. They're not sure when he's going to come back down. And so they rebel against God and worship a golden calf. And so there's a break. Moses is sent down the mountain to deal with this. But as we saw last week, God is gracious. He says he won't go with his people, but as Moses pleads with him based on his own characteristics and attributes, God says he will go with his people. And God reveals his glory to Moses by telling him who he is, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that he is just. And as we saw in Exodus chapter 34, verse 9, when Moses hears about who God is, as God, as Moses asks God to reveal his glory and God doesn't just show him something, he, he hears something, he preaches a sermon to Moses. Moses is even more desperate for God to go with them because of their sin. They need his grace continually and his grace is mediated through his presence. So Moses trusts God. God says he will go with them. God says the way that he will go with them is by dwelling in this tabernacle of all the instructions he's given to Moses. And so Moses trusts God. He takes him at his word and he gets to work. He starts putting together all the pieces of the tabernacle. He employs the people of Israel to participate in this. They give of their resources. They give above and beyond. There's actually a point where Moses says, okay, you can stop giving because you've given too much. So he give, they give all these things and then they use their God-given abilities to carry out this glorious task. And that brings us back to Exodus chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, when the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Now's the time. Now's the time to erect the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Now this would be and build some anticipation for these people. These two million people who've gone through all kinds of things are getting to this point of getting to actually now put up the tabernacle. They would be longing to see what would happen. What is God going to do? Well, then we see that God lists off again the different pieces of the tabernacle. And so I think it's important for us to really understand what each of these pieces of the tabernacle mean. What their significance really is. Because there is a significance to all these. These are not just nice decorations. These are not just pieces of furniture. They have a specific meaning and a specific purpose. So let's run through them quickly so that we can understand why they are significant. God talks about the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. This is where God will meet with Moses. It's a box overlaid with gold that no one is allowed to touch. And it's in the most holy place in the tabernacle. It's behind a veil. And in it are the, it is the testimony of the law. And there's a few other things that are added later. But on the top of this ark is a cover. And it's called the mercy seat. And on the top of this cover, there are two cherubim, two angels, their wings pointing towards one another, faces down. And it's there in the midst of this mercy seat that God's presence, he says, will come to dwell there. And only once a year can the high priest go into this most holy place. And when he goes, he must bring a blood sacrifice to place on the mercy seat. To make atonement for the sin of the people and atonement for his own sin. See, at the mercy seat of God is the place of mediation between holy God and sinful, helpless man. The next thing we see that God says is there's a veil 
And this veil separates the most holy place where the ark is from the rest of the tabernacle. And it's a massive curtain, some four inches thick with embroidered cherubim on it. We have the table with bread. And on this table that sits outside of the most holy place is our 12 loaves of bread that are placed there every week. And they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But this bread is not placed out like they're placing out cookies for Santa Claus. Okay, that's not what the bread's for. No, what they're placing this bread is, is not for God. It's a reminder that they need God. That it's by God's provision through his presence that they receive everything that they need. They're dependent on his presence for his promises. There's a lampstand. In a very dark tent, the lampstand would provide light. But it's not just to provide light. It's also a picture of something. It's in the shape of a tree. It's, a, it's signifying the fact that life in the garden came through the tree of life. And that life and light are found in and through God alone. Outside of God, there's only darkness and death. There's also the altar of incense. And the priests were commanded to burn incense in the morning and in the evening. And it was placed right in front of the veil of the most holy place. And oftentimes in scripture, incense is used as a symbol for prayers rising to God. And so the priests representing the people to God would offer incense and pray for them on their behalf both day and night. And then he says there's a screen at the door. There's a screen at the entrance of the tent. Only the priests are allowed to go in. There's the basin of water outside of the tent of meeting in the outer court. And this was where the priests would wash themselves to, to symbolize the fact that they needed to be cleansed before entering into the holy place. And then there's the bronze altar, which also stood in the outer court. It was where sacrifices were made by the people administered through the priests for their sin, for their rebellion against God. These sacrifices, as we'll see in the book of Leviticus, had to be made over and over and over again because the people still had sin that needed to be dealt with over and over and over again. And then outside of all of this, there's a basically a fence, a curtain that makes this outer court, which also has a door on it. And the people would build this tabernacle and would remove it and pack it all up. And as they moved, would put it up again so that God's presence might dwell there. Now, I know that's a lot as we talk through all those different pieces, but it's important. And we're going to come back to this in a minute to see really how important it is. But the bottom line is, the bottom line is we think about all these aspects, all these elements of the tabernacle is realizing that all of these things are necessary for the glory of God to dwell in the midst of his people. For the people of God to come before him through a representative priest. That is God's grace. God's not obligated to dwell with them in their midst, but in his grace and his mercy, he does. He makes a way for them. So God instructs Moses to set everything up. In verses 9 through 15, he tells Moses to anoint everything with oil, to consecrate it, to set it apart as holy, to distinguish it as being holy. Everything must be made holy because God himself is holy. Even the priests need to be anointed and consecrated as they represent the people to God and God to the people. The tabernacle and everything in it is a physical representation of the holiness and majesty of God. And then verses 16 and 17 tell us that Moses did exactly what God said. He did exactly what God said. And so we see in verses 18 through 33, an outline of Moses and the people setting this up, just like God said to set it up, just as he's instructed. But then we get to the climax of this story. It's the ending of the book of Exodus. 
It's what the people have been longing for, what they've been waiting for, eagerly anticipating and desiring. Everything is in place. Will God dwell in their midst or not? Will he be with them? Verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I mean, what a crazy sight. You've got two million people standing around waiting to see is the glory of God going to dwell in this place. And then it comes and it fills this tabernacle. And imagine they are in awe, maybe falling on their faces or on their knees in awe of what God is doing. The glory of Yahweh has come. His promise is fulfilled. It's so intense that Moses himself can't even enter into the tent of the tabernacle. God has come to dwell with his people in their midst. But just like we saw last week, if God relates to us at all, he must come down. He must condescend as God is transcendent and high and lifted up. What we have here in the tabernacle is a picture of his eminence. The fact that he comes to dwell with us. Again, this is a picture of God's grace. But the crazy thing about this is this is not just a one-time thing. God doesn't just come to dwell with his people in this one instance in the book of Exodus. We see that he continues to go with them. Verses 36 through 38. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys, God goes with them. After all they've been through, after all that they had done, God remains with them. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't forsake them. He will be their God and they will be his people. See, that's the purpose of the tabernacle. God says in Exodus chapter 29, there in the tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel. And it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also in his sons. I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God. Who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. This is the very purpose of the tabernacle. For God to dwell with his people, not just to save them, not just to save them from the rebellion, not just to save them from their slavery, but to be and enable them to have a relationship with him. See, the tabernacle would be at the center of the camp of Israel. And these two million people continued to trek through the wilderness. They would set up tents and the tabernacle would sit in the middle of it, signifying that God's presence is in the midst of them That he is Lord and that they are under his lordship. And that's for their joy. That's for their good. God is with them. Man, there's something powerful about presence, isn't there? There's something powerful about God's presence as they look and see the tabernacle. As they're having a difficult day or a difficult time or doubting God's goodness, they can just look to the tent and say, no, God is good. God is here. He's dwelling with us. There's something powerful about presence That makes me think about a parent-child relationship. When my kids are hurt, when my son Owen has had a bad dream, they they want my presence. They want Amy's presence. 
It isn't enough for them to know that we're in the same house, a room away. They want to be near us. Even after we discipline Owen, he doesn't run away. He wants to draw near. He wants to be close to us. And it isn't about quality time, just about quality time. It's about quantity time. A deeper bond and relationship is built the more time we spend together engaging with one another. There's power in presence. It makes me think of a husband-wife relationship. In a very similar way, marriages thrive most when spouses are present with one another, actually engaged with one another. I'm not talking about sitting in the same room, looking at your phone or your iPad or watching TV, but actually spending time with one another, engaged with each other. There is power in presence. Makes me think about deep friendship. There's something so much more meaningful and purposeful about spending actual face-to-face time with people that you're close with. I'm not talking about FaceTime, like not on your phone, but actually face-to-face time. Looking at them, talking with them, not just over the phone or texting or emailing. There's power in presence. And that's God's gift to his people. His presence. They're desperate for it. In the middle, middle of the desert, trekking to a new land with fear of enemies, and difficulties and hardships ahead, there is power in presence, knowing God will be with them. God will go with them. But as we look at the tabernacle, we can't miss one very key thing. There's one very key thing that we have to understand, that we have to notice as we read through all of this, as we see the display of God's grace through his presence in the tabernacle. The one thing we have to make sure we don't skip over is that there is not full access. There's limitations. There's limitations to what the people of God are able to experience of God's presence. We see it first with Moses as he's unable to enter into the tent, but we see it even more with the people. They can't go into the tabernacle. They can only observe it from the outside as it sits in their midst. Only the priests representing the people can go into the holy place of the tabernacle. And only once a year into the most holy place where the glory of God manifestly dwells. And when the priest goes, he must bring a blood sacrifice. He can't go in without that for himself and for his people, the sin of the people. See, God is present But they can't experience his full presence. And what this does for Israel, what it reminds Israel of, what it reminds you and I of, what we should be reminded of as we look at this, is a reminder that sin is serious. It can't be swept under the rug. It can't be ignored. It can't be discounted. It is treason against our holy and almighty creator. And so they're reminded of that every time they realize I can't go into the full presence of God. I have to have someone else represent me there. See, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 that we studied back in April. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve, representing all of humanity, rebel against God. They choose to live for themselves and their glory instead of God and his glory. And so God removes his people from his presence. And what he does is he puts cherubim up at the entrance of the garden to keep them out. But he gives them a promise before they go. He makes a promise to them before they go. He says that one would come who would destroy the sin that separates and bring full restoration between God and man. 
And many things have happened since then. As we've walked through the book of Genesis, as we've walked through the book of Exodus, we've seen over and over and over again that God is faithful, that he's faithful to his plans of redemption, that he's faithful to his people that are his own possession. And the tabernacle is one of the biggest pictures of that. That all this time that God has said that he's going to go with them, that he's going to dwell with them, that he's going to bring redemption. And the, the tabernacle is a visual picture, a visual reminder that God is faithful to his plans and his people as he's come to dwell in their midst. But it doesn't complete the promise of redemption outlined in Genesis chapter 3. It isn't the end of the story. Remember the cherubim on the veil. It's, it's reminding the people that just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and these angels stood at that, the gate of the garden keeping the people away, that here these cherubim represent that they can't just come into the presence of God. They're still separating the people from the full presence of God and his glory. See, what the tabernacle does is twofold. It looks backward and it looks forward. It reminds God's people that redemption and the Redeemer will come as was promised. To restore fully the relationship between God and his people. But it also is a reminder that he has not yet come to the people of Israel. As one commentator says, it's a picture of the past and a promise of the future. See, the tabernacle was never intended to be the finality of his promises and his presence. It was never meant to be the final thing. It was always intended to be a foreshadowing, a promise of future grace. It was always meant to point to something greater. See, the glory of God came and settled in a magnificent way here in the tabernacle and later in the temple. But many years later, God's glory would come again to dwell with his people. Not with extravagance, but humility. Not with majesty, but with ordinariness. Not in a tent, but in a person. Last week, we looked at John chapter 1, and I want to look at that again this morning. So if you have your Bible still, you can flip over to John chapter 1 and just read with me what John writes. The song we sang this morning, the word, is out of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John writes this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we have to understand what's going on here. And again, we miss something in the translation here, in our English translation from the Greek. In verse 14, what this says is, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the new tabernacle. In him, the glory of God fully resides. God is present through his son. And through his son comes grace and truth and life. It's grace upon grace. We have seen the glory of God. We have experienced the glory of God through Jesus. Verse 18 says that Jesus himself explains God to us. If we want to know who God is, if we want to know the father, we must know him through his son. 
Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Was pleased to dwell just like in the tabernacle. Or as Matthew writes in the first chapter of Matthew, as the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph, telling him of his son that's about to be born, that his name will be Jesus, but he also will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But see, Sojourn, it doesn't stop there. Jesus isn't just the tabernacle, the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He's not just a new tabernacle, but he fulfills the very purpose of the tabernacle. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews writes about this. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. It's impossible to know God. It's impossible to come into his presence apart from coming before him with a blood sacrifice. We see this in the priests. They can only go in once a year. And when they go, they must bring a blood sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But the priest had to do this over and over and over again because they are representatives of the people and they themselves are, are sinful just as the people are sinful. But see, what we see here in Hebrews is that the perfect sacrifice has been made. The blood has been shed. The Redeemer has come because Jesus goes in for us with his own blood to make a way. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 and 26, it says this, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, Christ represents us to God. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood, not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, Christ is our high priest. Christ is the high priest who is without sin. So he needs no sacrifice for himself, but instead he sacrifices himself for us. And he does it once. It's a once for all sacrifice. And in doing this, he secures an eternal redemption for all who call on his name to be saved. See, when we look at the different elements of the tabernacle, what we should see is their significance is fulfilled in and through Jesus. If we go back and look at the lampstand that sheds light, that is a reminder of light and life, we see that Jesus himself is the light and life of men, as John says in John chapter 1. Or as Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. There's the bread of presence, which is a reminder of God's provision. But Jesus himself is our provision, who in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. The altar of incense is a symbolizing of prayer being lifted up to God. But in Hebrews chapter 7, it says of Jesus, he will always, he always lives to make intercession for his people before the throne There's the basin of water that's there for cleansing. But Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 that he is the living water. He washes us white as snow. He cleanses us from all our sin, making us clean and new. 
There's the bronze altar where sacrifices are made outside of the most holy place. And Jesus went outside the camp to be a sacrifice for us. He bore the wrath of God on his back on the cross. He shed his blood for our sin and for our rebellion. And then there's the mercy seat where the blood must be put on so that we can relate to God. But Jesus' blood satisfies Romans 3 tells us that his blood is a propitiation for our sin. It satisfies the wrath of God. That's what that means. He makes atonement for our sins so that we receive his righteousness, so that we are justified and forgiven because it's applied to us. See, Jesus fulfills fully and finally the purpose of the tabernacle and by doing so ushers us into God's presence now and forever. There's no more veil anymore. The cherubim are no longer guarding the presence of God. The veil has been torn in two. You and I, through Christ, have full access to the holy, living God now and forever. Now you may say, well, why does all this matter? Why is this important to go through right now? What does this affect my life? How does it affect me right now? Man, this is important. This matters because this is your only hope and peace right now and forever. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, therefore, brothers, understanding what Christ has done, understanding that he's the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, because of those things, this is what we're able to do. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And sojourn, we have to remember that our sin makes us enemies of God, but God has come down. He's come down. He has tabernacled with us as one of us to rescue and redeem us. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 together now say, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through Christ, we are able to have peace with God now. There's no separation when we're covered by the blood of Jesus. We can approach the mercy seat of God and receive mercy because the blood of Christ covers us and there's no separation. Why does this matter? Because there's absolutely nothing you or I can do now to know God or be in a relationship with him apart from Christ. And we need to hear that again this morning. Maybe for you it's the first time you've ever heard that. Maybe it's the thousandth time you've heard this. But we need to be reminded of it again this morning. Listen, living your own way, making your own path will not bring you into the presence of God. Doing good deeds will not bring you into the presence of God. Doing religious things and trying to follow the rules will not bring you into the presence of God. You don't clean yourself up to come to God. You come as you are. You come as you are, leaning wholly on who Jesus is and what he has done. Look, there is no one that is too far gone from God's grace. There's no one that is too far gone or beyond God's ability to redeem 
Jesus is your only plea. He's your only plea. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, whether it's the day that you die or when Christ returns, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he says to you, why should you be allowed into the full presence? Why should you be allowed into eternity for the full presence of me? All we'll be able to say is Jesus. That's it. We can't come with anything else. We have no other plea. We come empty-handed, desperate for God's grace, and our only plea is Jesus. See, for those of you that know Christ, the same is true for you. Jesus doesn't just save you. It's not just for something later on in eternity. It enables you right now to have an ongoing and eternal relationship with the living God. So even now, you can do nothing to earn God's favor or lose God's favor if you're in Christ. Jesus is still your only plea. So we need to be reminded of this once again because we so easily set it aside. In the midst of the difficulties of life, we we set aside the realization that Jesus goes in to the tent for us. And that's how we can know God And so we try and do other things. We think if we have a good spiritual day, reading our Bible, praying, serving, going to church, giving to the poor, that'll bring us closer to God. But listen, God does not love you more because of that. And in the very same way, when you have a bad spiritual day, God does not love you less because of that. He loves you because he is love. And he displays this love by sending his only son to die for you. He displays this love by sending his only son to enter the holy place for you, to make a way, to make you new, to cleanse you and transform you. And he does it by his blood and nothing else. That is love. And that is the glory of God on display. So you and I have an accuser. We have an accuser that stands before God accusing you of your sin day and night bringing your rebellion before God, pointing out the fact that, look, he did it again. Look, she did it again. But you also have an advocate. First John 2 says, if anyone does sin, and we will sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, the accusations of the accuser hold no weight. They hold no water because Jesus stands before the throne of God in his presence and declares, it is finished. It is finished. Man, would we believe that today? Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, would we believe that tomorrow as we go about our week, believing that the reason we're in God's presence is because Jesus says it is finished Will we believe that for years to come, year after year after year? Man, when you and I understand that God's glory has come to dwell among us and to rescue us, when we understand that we can now come into his presence with thanksgiving, with singing, should help us to realize that it brings freedom to our life right now. It brings rest to our life right now. Look, we are released from the burden of performance through Christ. We are released from the burden of perfectionism. We are released from a burden of self-salvation and self-righteousness. We are released from the burden of pretending. See, now before God, you are fully known and fully loved. So rest today, sojourn. Rest in Jesus today. He is your only plea before the mercy seat and he is faithful 
And so now in and through Christ, you can boldly approach the mercy seat to receive mercy. He removes the burden that you're carrying around on your back. There is freedom and rest in God's presence. There is power in presence. See, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what your relationship with God is like right now. I know some of you know Christ. I know some of you don't yet know Christ. I know some of you think some of you think that you know Christ, but have never truly repented or believed the gospel. But let me encourage all of you today, no matter where you're at, all of you today, in light of the truth that we've just looked at, let me encourage you with this. It is finished. So come into his presence. Sin is paid for. So come into his presence. Stop trying to do this on your own. Come into his presence. Stop faking it. Come into his presence. Stop running away. Come into his presence. Stop lying about how things are going. Come into his presence. Stop pretending everything is okay or that you figured it all out. Come into his presence. Stop ignoring the reality of your own heart and come into his presence. Stop seeking peace in someone or something else and come into his presence. Stop seeking or placing your hope in someone or something else and come into his presence. Sojourn, I pray that God would wreck you with his grace. That every time you think, I need to bring something to God, I need to offer something to him, I've messed up again, that you would be reminded of what Jesus has done for you. And that would wreck you, that God's grace would wreck you. Because when God's grace wrecks you, it transforms you. It brings freedom. It brings rest. See, all of this, the tabernacle, the work of Christ should give us peace now and hope forever. Because one day Jesus is coming back again. And if you know him, if you know him now, he will bring you into final and full glory then where you will be made like him. And what we see dimly now, we will know fully as we behold the face of our God and king in the new city. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 22. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord. God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever where we will experience ultimate freedom and ultimate rest in the presence of our God. Man, what a glorious day. And you and I should long for that. We should long for that day. Not going about our life being satisfied with things here, thinking, man, the best life that I can have is to have long years, to have health and prosperity here. No, the day that we should long for is the day that we see our God face to face. But until that day comes, let's rest in the finished work of Christ and nothing else. Let's rest there, find freedom there. And let's go and tell the world of this glorious news God has and is redeeming a people for his own possession. So let's call one another to that. Let's call the world around us to come into God's presence now so they can come into God's presence forever. As we come forward now to take communion, let's be reminded of what the Apostle Paul says to us about this sacred meal. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So today as we eat the bread, signifying Christ's body given for you, and as you drink the cup, signifying Christ's blood shed for you, know that what you do today is you proclaim his death until he comes again. You proclaim it to yourself, and you proclaim it to those around you, You proclaim that your only hope in this life and the life to come is Jesus Christ who died and was raised again. Jesus is our only plea now and forever. So may your heart and spirit be encouraged today as you eat and drink, knowing that the curtain is torn in two because Christ has come and having hope, knowing that Christ will come again. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning to take communion Don't come up to take the bread and the cup because what this means for us, this is a declaration that our only hope is Jesus. That we're not finding rest or satisfaction or peace in anything or anyone else but Jesus. That he is our only plea. And so if that's not true for you yet, if you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, then we don't want you to take communion today. We want you to take Christ today. Would you call out to God to save you today? Would you say, God, would you rescue me today? Turn away from your sin and lean on Jesus today. And if you have questions about what that means, if you want to talk with somebody or pray with someone, please come up to me after the service or Alan or Evan or any of our other leaders. We'd love to do that with you. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you, As he's gone to the holy place for you, what he's done for you will be spoken over you. And you can take it immediately or when you get back to your seat. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the book of Exodus. That it is a story of your grace. That over and over again we see the people of Israel making mistake after mistake, rebelling against you even after you've displayed your grace to them. And Lord, we are so much like that. So Lord, today as we wrap up the book of Exodus and we have talked about the tabernacle, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning not to come before you with excuses, not to come before you with anything to offer you in our hands as if that could earn favor with you, as if that would allow us into your presence. May the thing we come to you today with and every day after be Jesus. May that be our only plea. May we find freedom and rest in in your presence because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, I pray that you would call those that don't know you to yourself this morning. And those of us that already do know you, Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here resting in the fact that we've been redeemed and restored through the blood of Christ. That we can boldly approach the mercy seat now. That the veil has been torn in two because of Christ. And may that be the gospel that we communicate to the world around us. Nothing else. Lord, help us to not ever, ever add anything else to Jesus. But as we go out to talk to our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members who don't yet know Christ, a total stranger on the street, may what we tell them is Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is all that you need. We don't have to know all the answers. We need to know Jesus. 
So Lord, I pray that we'd rest in that and that would be the message of this church and the message of this people as we go out from here today. Would you call people to yourself? And Lord, may your glory manifest itself all over Fairfax, all over Northern Virginia and all over this world as we take that message out from here. Help us to believe it first and then to go. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.